Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Through the work of the guests of Spirit in Action, we try to lift up good in the world, and most days we are pretty concrete about it, seeking out people working for peace and social justice, care for creation, and much more. Today we are going to take a step back and seek to better understand good's opposite, called evil in many religious contexts. We will be speaking with Charlene P. E. Burns, professor of philosophy and religious studies at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, about her recent book, Christian Understandings of Evil, The Historical Trajectory. Charlene Burns joins me in person for today's visit. Charlene, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me, Mark. I met you so many years ago. I guess it's probably something short of 15 years ago. The topic for today, however, is evil. So why are you so obsessed with evil? <laughs> well, <laughs> my students have sometimes wondered that. <laughs> Actually, I became fascinated with it, I think, originally, the way many believers do. You look around the world and you see so much suffering and things that seem to be evil and try to find an explanation for it. It's the reason that I went to graduate school to study theology and religions, and it has been a continuing question throughout my life and my career. So if you're thinking about evil, you must have had some impetus to think about evil. <laughs> Was there a particular evil in your life that you witnessed? I mean, some people just, you know, you grew up knowing about the Holocaust, and you say, why is that kind of evil in the world? Or, or maybe it's of a more personal nature. You know, you have... My mom died when I was nine years old, drunk driving, you know. But if you're killed by a drunk driver, what is, is there evil? There's suffering in the world. What was for you the impetus to think about evil? Well, kind of a tough question in one way and not so tough in another. When I was about five years old, we, my family and I, we were all piled in the car on the way to Tybee Island Beach for vacation. It was very early in the morning. There was a car coming toward us on the highway. It was a two-lane highway. I guess it's not a highway anymore. And I heard my dad say a four-letter word and I looked up out the to see what was going on out the windshield. And this car was swerving back and forth on the two-lane road. And there was a drop-off on both sides of the road into the marsh. So my dad would swerve to the other side, and we watched the car swerve just follow our car. When my dad would go to the right, that car swerved to be right head-on. And it was as if the driver was trying to have a head-on collision. Succeeded, had a terrible accident. My sisters and I were knocked unconscious. I woke up with my head in the lap of what turned out to be a nurse. We were very fortunate in that sense. My dad was in the hospital for a very long time, ruptured spleen, lots of broken bones, 
He couldn't walk for a year and had to go through rehab. My mom was badly injured, but not as badly as my dad. All of that was my first introduction to the nonsense of the world, the suffering that seems to come from nowhere. The driver of the other car was very drunk, and apparently he was so drunk that the front end of our car was a, seemed to him to be a stable thing to look at, and that's why he kept following the front end of our car. We were very fortunate that my father lived, but it was touch and go. And then later on in life, as a teenager, I loved studying history. The events of World War II were deeply disturbing to me. So I read everything I could find on the Holocaust. And I also, more in a way disturbing in a, in a different and deeper way, was our use of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that was when I really, really began to wonder, what kind of world is this and what kind of God is it? if there is one, that allows these things to happen. And for a lot of people, the easy answer is, there is no God, so therefore none of it makes sense, you know, existentialism and beyond. Mm -hmm. But evidently you went in a religious, spiritual direction to answer this question. Were you tempted to go the other way? Were you tempted to just say, none of this makes sense, it's all ridiculous, just eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die? Well, yes, I've been tempted, and there have been times in my life when I have chosen that path, when I have decided that it's all too absurd for there to be any kind of a a God that matches what the Christian tradition says God is. We say in the world of theology that the problem of evil is the number one cause of atheism, and I think in a lot of ways that's very true. We find that that's where people stumble most, especially, it's an especially acute problem for Christianity, because for all the monotheisms, but Christianity in particular, theologically has a problem with the problem of evil because of the claim that God is omnipotent and at the same time love itself. So if God is all-powerful and God is love itself, for God so loved the world that the incarnation happened, right, then how can it be that this God allows the depths of suffering and misery that we see in the world. It just doesn't make sense. So what can we do with that? And that's the real theological problem. Is there any solution? And that question is answered dozens and dozens of ways in your recent book, Christian Understandings of Evil, The Historical Trajectory by Charlene P. E. Burns. There are so many answers that go back, but to properly set the question, now you said this is a big issue in Christianity. Christianity comes out of the Jewish context. In the Hebrew scriptures, there are references to things, as you point out in the book, that we refer to as Satan or God. I was very amused to find out, because I I had read the book of Job before, and from my point of view, it starts with a gambling session between (laughs) God and Satan, right? But you say something interesting about what Satan means in the Hebrew understanding, and it it wasn't just, you know, the guy with the horns and the tail stuff. Yes, um, actually, in the Hebrew Bible, Satan is not a proper name. It's a descriptor. It means the adversary. And when you look at the Hebrew itself, the word Satan is always written ha-satan, the Satan, the adversary. And the role of the Satan figure, the adversary figure, appears several times in the Hebrew Bible. One time, God is called ha-satan in inciting David to do things that go against God's own directions, I guess you might say. 
and there are other individuals who are referred to as Ha-Satan. But in the book of Job, the adversary is part of the heavenly court hanging out with God in heaven. And as you say, (laughs) the adversary decides to see if he can get God to allow him to torment this particularly righteous person, Job. And it is a kind of a gambling session. And that's another place where questions come for believers. If you read that book carefully, why in the world would God take a bet with Ha-Satan, the adversary, whether you believe it's the adversary or Satan in the Christian sense, either way? doesn't make any sense. Why would God say, okay, go ahead, torment Job? Yes, he's completely righteous. He's never done anything wrong. He's like the perfect believer. But go ahead, torment him and see if you can just mess him up. (laughs) It's never made sense. (laughs) And there are a lot of names that we use. I mean, you have to, so you can have more stories, right? You have to get different names for the evil one. Uh, Sometimes called demons, sometimes called Beelzebub. I don't know if I can pronounce that correct. Lucifer. Lucifer is one of the phrases that evolves over time. There's just so many different ways that this evil thing is referred to. But then there's this other thing, and I'm not sure exactly how they're related. It's certainly part of what you talk about in the book. We talk about evil, and we also talk about sin. There's some relationship, but they're not synonymous. So what is sin in relation to evil, at least as some of these people that you talk about, all these theologians over the many centuries, the millennia, are talking about? Distinction in Christianity between sin and evil has to do with responsibility, I think. Sin is the individual separation from God. I, as an individual, am separated from God. I choose to do things which go against the will of God. Evil is not, well, let me put it this way, not all sins are evil, but evil arises from sin. One theologian in the 19th century put it very well, I think, his name is Schleiermacher. He said that sin is the precondition for evil, but evil arises out of the community. Evil is the product of the sins of many. So we as groups are the source of evil in our our own individual sins. So they're not identical, but evil is dependent on sin, but sin is not necessarily. Part of where I am theologically, and you know me as a Quaker, I've got some kind of offbeat take on a lot of this stuff. The idea that all evil comes from people, as opposed to cats. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I say that there's a very weird situation I had at one point in college. I had a girlfriend, and I had a cat, and the cat and my girlfriend did not like each other. You could just see both of them look at him kind of snarl at one another as she walked in the room, which is really funny because she's a really sweet, sweet girl. Anyway, there was one point where she's sitting in my room and the cat jumps on the arm of the couch that she was sitting on, jumps on her lap, pees on her, and takes off. (laughs) Can cats sin and are they evil? That's a great question. (laughs) And it's one that's become more interesting in the 21st century than it was in the theological past for Christians. The answer to all of that would have been in the past that because of that first sin of Adam and Eve, the original sin, creation itself was ruptured. And so anything that we see in the world that uh, looks like evil, like that cat peeing on her lap, is actually the end result of of eons of rupture to creation because of human sin. So what that cat did is not really the cat's fault, it's Adam and Eve's fault. 
Sure, explain it away. It's not my <laughs> fault, not my fault. <laughs> you know, actually, a weird thing is the very first Quaker meeting I went to, and mind you, I was raised Catholic, and I had the usual ideas given to me as Catholic. I wasn't buying them at that point, but I checked out a number of different churches, went to a Congregational Church and Methodist Church and Lutheran, I mean, I, Episcopal. I actually went to all of those in the summer to just get a taste of what alternatives were there, and I went to a first Quaker meeting, and while I was lying there on the floor, I was in someone's living room, I said, well, I'm going to be quiet for an hour, which is unusual for me. And I thought, well, I might as well think something profound. So I thought about the story about Adam and Eve, which, you know, mind you, I, I believe this is all mythology. It's teaching us lessons. It's not to be taken literally. But one of the things that was very clear to me at the end of that hour, sitting thinking about that was, now, wait a minute. God lied. God says, on the day that you taste that fruit, you'll surely die. So it starts out, God's lying. What God said did not come true at that moment. The devil or the, the snake, I don't know if that's actually considered the devil, and I'm not sure what that's considered to be, tells the truth. You'll have the knowledge of good and evil if you eat that thing. So this is very confusing to me because just like in the book of Job, at the end of it, God says, who cares what you think? You weren't there at the beginning. I've got all the power. Shut up and just do what I tell you to kind of thing. Evil and God, in a lot of stories, it's hard to know where the line is. That's a very good point. When you look at the Hebrew Bible, evil, I guess, in the end, comes from God. There's no real attempt in the Hebrew Bible to dance around that. The Satan figure in uh, the Garden of Eden for the Jewish tradition, represents the always present possibility for evil. It's not Satan in the way that Christians think of it. It's a mythological symbol, as you say, of the possibility for choosing to go against God. Because in Judaism, we have a dual inclination. We have an inclination for the good. We have an equally strong inclination for evil. And it's up to the community to raise children properly so that they come to be able to more reliably choose the good over evil. That's what the bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah signifies, is you're now a son or daughter of the commandments. You're more reliably able to choose the good. So this figure, the serpent, represents the fact that God created things so that the possibility for choosing evil already was present in the created world. And in the book of Job, another interesting thing about the ending, to me, a really fascinating point about the ending of that book is that Job's friends spent a lot of time and energy <laughs> trying to justify all of the suffering, all the misery, the death and destruction that Job and his family experienced at the hands of this capricious figure, you know, it's like this bet that God took with the adversary. Those friends offered all of the platitudes and the usual explanations that we tend to give one another. You know, oh, you must have done something to deserve it. God is just, or all these normal things that we say to one another to try to justify God in the face of all this suffering. What does God do? God says, you spoke wrongly of me to Job's friends. He punishes Job's friends and then rewards Job many times over for standing firm for challenging God, for refusing to accept that he'd done anything to deserve this, but still being solid in his belief in God. You know, we're going to jump all around, Charlene, through the book. Again, the book, folks, is Christian Understandings, 
Notice that's plural, understandings of evil. The Historical Trajectory by Charlene P.E. Burns. When you want to track her down, come via the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. We're going to have a link to her Amazon book page. She's got plenty of other books and articles out there. We'll talk a little bit about them. And this book is just her latest work. She's a professor of philosophy and religious studies at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. There's a lot of other people studying evil across the country. Some of them might be in politics and maybe even at the apex, for all we know. There's evil going on, and I'm sure that some of us don't choose to use the word evil, although I think that even atheists come out with the word evil pretty frequently. One of the big picture questions that I had approaching this book, Charlene, was why talk about it in the Christian context? Isn't evil as evil as evil? Is there a place where evil for a non-Christian or an atheist is not the same as it is for a Christian? I think that obviously human suffering and the questions that come from it, not just human suffering but animal suffering, the devastation that comes from natural events and that sort of thing, causes any thinking person to stop and wonder what it's all about, why the world is the way it is, and does any of it make any sense, and how do we deal with on a day-to-day basis, the apparently senseless suffering that happens all over the world. People find different explanations for it, and in some religious traditions, there is suffering, but there is no evil in the sense that Christianity talks about evil. Buddhism, for example, teaches that uh, one of the basic principles of Buddhism that uh, is that all of life is suffering or unsatisfactory. There's something wrong in life. And so Buddhism is all about teaching us how to deal with that experience that all of life is suffering or unsatisfactory. But there's no concept of evil in the way that Christians speak of it. In the stories of the Buddha, when he achieved enlightenment, he confronts this figure called Mara, which is the figure representing evils in the world. But that's never been taken to be a literal figure. That's not a not the equivalent of the Christian Satan. Mara and all of those experiences that the Buddha had during his time of achieving enlightenment are considered to be mental constructs, I guess you might say. And so evil is something that comes from human choosing. And the word evil, it does appear in Buddhism, but it's said that evil arises from greed. And there is no external source of evil. Evil comes from within the human experience. And so we're supposed to learn to control our own consciousness in a way that allows us to overcome the sufferings of the world. I've been told that the word in Hebrew that we translate as sin actually refers to you've got a target you're aiming at and missing the mark is what I've heard, which is a serious problem because since my name's Mark, missing the mark is a big deal. So missing the mark is what it's about. Your aim is not true. I think that other religions think differently about that. And again, you know, if I miss the target, does that mean I'm evil? I mean, that doesn't, there's a deep wrestling that we have to do to talk about this. Again, as you said from the beginning, you know, you talk about the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or you talk about what happened in the concentration camps. There's massive bad things. Some people don't even like to use the word bad, but I sure as hell want to work against that kind of thing happening in the world. So we're wrestling with this concept of evil. There's two possibilities. We wrestle with it so that we reduce evil in the world, 
or we wrestle with it just so it doesn't overtake us emotionally. I'm going to bring this question back to which I started on is, so why are we talking about evil? Is it because we're trying to eradicate it in the world? That doesn't seem to be what most of the theology I read in your book, Christian Understandings of Evil, seems to be about. It seems to be more like, here's how I can deal with my despair. <laughs> I think maybe that's the big question. How do I deal with my despair when I see so much evil? And again, suffering as a variety of evil as opposed to moral evil, like this is a person who's going to go out and kill and cause injury to other people. Well, in the Christian tradition, there has uh, been a tendency to say that the usefulness of the distinction between sin and evil has to do with your own personal responsibility. Christianity does historically tend to focus on individual salvation, and sometimes so much so that it forgets the communal realities that were part of Jesus' original followers and his message, the responsibility we have for one another. Some Christians say that evil is in the hands of God, that God will overcome evil at the end of time, that it will, it just will be part of things until then. And so all I can do is to try to deal with the sin of my own life. How am I, as you say, missing the mark? And the mark being what God intends me to do in my life in the here and now. It's interesting to me that Jesus, when people did ask him, when we read the New Testament, the Gospels, when people tried to get him to give a direct answer on the source of evil, he never directly answered the question. Like in the Gospel of John with the blind man, his challengers are trying to get him to say whose fault it is that the man is blind. Is it his parents' fault or did he do something and so on and so forth? He redirects the conversation. He talks about, in more than one place, when people try to get direct answers like that, he talks about what can be done about it rather than where it came from. For me, that seems to be something that gets missed a lot of times, and people get bogged down in the concern over evil itself rather than thinking about what can I, in my own individual life, through my trying to hit the mark, do to alleviate things in the here and now. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit more as we go on. And there's, again, a couple thousand years of theology, actually a few thousand years of theology and theodicy. We have to talk about that word in a moment. That is covered in Charlene Burns' book, Christian Understandings of Evil, the Historical Trajectory. And we want to talk about that because we actually want to make the world better. That's why you're here on Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, Northern Spirit radio.org with almost 12 years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll have links to our guests. So when you want to find Charlene Burns' other books and this book, you'll find links on our site to that. She doesn't have a website of her own yet. That's coming. Evil working in her life has prevented her from getting her website up yet. But you will find a link to it via nordenspiritradio.org. Also on that site, you'll find links to all of our other guests, other information, lists of other books by Charlene. Plus, you'll find a place to post comments, and we really value two-way communication. It's not enough that I speak or that Charlene speaks. It's really important that we hear your voices. So post a comment when you visit. There's also a place to donate. This is full-time work, and it makes all the difference about whether you support it or not because we don't depend on either government or corporations for our income. It is from people. So please click donate when you come. Even more important, though, I'd say is to support your local media. And by that, I would refer to organizations like CV Post is one organization here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, the area where I happen to live. Community Radio, WHYS is the radio 
radio station on which this syndicated program started out. It's so important to provide local voice for media. We need people's voice, not just people at the top of the food pyramid. So please, start by supporting your community radio stations and other local media. Again, Charlene Burns is here. Christian Understandings of Evil. One of the things that I have to circle back to from many, many different directions is why we're doing this work. And so I have to ask the question, Charlene, after we read all of the people, Schleiermacher, and when we read Irenaeus, and we read Aquinas, and all of these other people, their takes on evil, does that, in your view, serve to reduce the amount of evil in the world? Well... (laughs) I think that the intent of all of these theologians and philosophers over the centuries was to understand why it happens more than to have any direct impact on its occurrence, to be honest with you. In the early church, in the first few centuries, probably had a more practical purpose because most of the theologians, most of the writers whose works survive were actually also priests and bishops and deacons and churches. So they were, in addition to trying to come up with an answer to why, they were trying to figure out a way to deal with their congregations, to minister to people who were suffering. But then we move into the Middle Ages with people like Aquinas. He was, of course, a part of the church, but his job was more to think, (laughs) to be a philosopher and a theologian than it was to minister to people. And so he becomes more intellectual in his search for answers. There's been a turn in the theological reflection on evil in recent times, back to an understanding of it as a more practical exercise. Sometimes when you read, um, and when I was writing, having to go back and reread these thinkers and, and then condense their thought in a way that is hopefully understandable to the average person, I was reminded over and over again about how fruitless it can seem sometimes to do intellectual speculation on something like this. And in recent times, there's been a recognition that maybe the question of evil is not an intellectual problem to be solved but a reality that needs to be dealt with. And so maybe it's more a pastoral than a theological problem. There's not a clear divide between being a pastor and being a theologian, but the pastoral focus is more on, is not more on, it's literally on dealing with individual people in their everyday sufferings. The theologian's problem is the intellectual one, sitting in the ivory tower and trying to come up with a, a solution to a problem that, hangs together logically and sometimes more often than not really in in the real world evil just is suffering happens and not all suffering is evil but there is much evil in the world and so how do we deal with it in the real world practically speaking some have argued recently and i agree with these voices that although there's some value to a project like aquinas's or hegel's Those projects, if we put too much emphasis on that sort of thinking about evil, then we end up silencing the voices of the suffering. You're touching on some areas, Charlene, that were pretty important to me when I was thinking about this. Again, suffering. So Katrina, Hurricane Katrina happens, and a lot of people die and suffer because of that. Is that evil? Now, some people, some religious people, uh, people who call themselves Christians say, yeah, that's because you have gays and you're immoral, and so that this is God's punishment. That's obviously not a track that either you or I are on, and 
I think it's pretty lamentable that someone goes in that direction. And yet some of the theologians that you dealt with here might accept that as an explanation. The thing that I've seen a lot of people do, I've been fascinated by the kind of born-again experience that people have, and frequently that's through doing something called the sinner's prayer. I'll let you say what it is, but clearly what it comes from is people recognizing some kind of sin or connection to evil within themselves, saying this prayer, being lifted from it so that they can live their life better. I know if they live their life better, then I guess maybe evil in the world is reducing. So the sinner's prayer has the capability, the possibility at least, of reducing sin in the world. Now, I imagine there's a lot of our listeners who say that a lot of people who are born again seem to still do kind of evil stuff, right? And I've seen people, including in my family, who've cleaned up their act personally, but still have political and social attitudes that I find reprehensible. Again, those are my perspectives, their perspectives. I'm not absolutely sure I'm right, but God probably says I am. (laughs) I think things like the sinner's prayer, that if you accept a small New Testament handout from some of the people who come to campus every year, for example, then that prayer is printed in the back of the book, and the hope is that you will. You can either pray that prayer first and then read the New Testament or read the New Testament and be moved to pray that prayer. And it's supposed to be the thing that opens your eyes to the truth that Christ is Lord and everything is in God's hands and you are a sinner. And as long as you accept the fact of your being a sinner, you're forgiven by God. So I think the way that functions for some people, it might be similar to the way confession functions in the Catholic and Episcopal churches. It allows people to say out loud the badness that they feel in their own hearts, the recognition of the bad things they've done and the things they want to do maybe but haven't done, by saying that out loud and then having another human being essentially say, it's okay, but that human being is believed to be in some sense in connection with God in a way that I am not, then that allows me to feel free of my burdens. It's, as you said, we can look at, there are a lot of cases in the world, in our personal lives and in public lives, of people who who say they have prayed that prayer and been changed, had a true conversion experience, but the way they live their lives outwardly doesn't seem to indicate that they have truly turned away from sin and evil as I understand it. Throughout the book, you're tracing the historical trajectory. That's the subtitle of the book. So you're talking about the early church, you know, and we're talking about people when the church was being persecuted, people are being killed if you're a Christian, and then it becomes, with Constantine, becomes the state religion, and so thoughts change again, and I think that's where original sin doctrine starts coming in. And then we have this long period afterwards, which we call the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, going into the Enlightenment, and all of a sudden science starts coming in. This is the broad historical scope that we're looking at in this book, and theology changes with each stage in that. And now we're back, I think, at a stage where there's kind of reaction against science. We see that at the highest levels of our government. At a certain point, the theologians at the time of Isaac Newton, Galileo, all of a sudden they said, well, gee, you know, when a storm hit, Maybe this is a result of physics, not the result of you didn't please the gods kind of thing, or the god, as your perspective may be. 
the prayer, the sinner's prayer, brings it back to the individual level. And again, I do think there's a number of people who are born-again Christians whose lives change, and they do much good in the world because of their change, that they really do a turnabout. But there was a point where most sin and evil was considered to be a corporate issue, not an individual issue. How far is our needle towards the individual now versus the corporate in terms of Christianity? Oh, boy, that depends on which denomination you're a part of, I would have to say. The individual stays central in all forms of Christianity, but in some of the more, I guess what we call the more mainstream denominations today, in those denominations, there's been a kind of return to the New Testament to read it through the lens of the 21st century and understand that Jesus's message was all about social justice. It boggles the mind when you read it to think how people could have gotten so far off the track. Some denominations today, though, still see that the message of Jesus as all about me. It's all about my individual sinfulness and need for God and salvation is mine. But the mainstream denominations are rereading the book and seeing that Jesus was all about community. Jesus was not talking about me, 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 me. Jesus was talking about me in relation to others. My responsibility is to my community and to God in a real way where in some denominations we're returning to trying to get rid of those centuries of accretion, I guess you might say. The Western mind, and this is a problem for philosophers, is much more individual-focused than the Eastern mind. And some people say that that actually, as a result of Christianity's turn to the individual, but that brings up a whole different can of worms there. And what about over the millennia, the view of this personification of evil, the devil. I mean, I mean, I don't think the word the devil actually exists in the Bible. I, I could be wrong about that because I not only do not read, speak Hebrew or Greek or any of the other languages, Aramaic, on none of them. I, I speak English and I do a fairly flawed job of that. But I think the devil personification perhaps has ebbed and flowed in terms of the general perception of it as a reality. I mean, I remember reading the story where Jesus is confronting the guy. I think he comes running out of a graveyard, and he's clearly, you would either call him possessed or you might call him severely mentally ill, but then Jesus commands the multitude, the whatever's possessing them, to go out of the guy who's yelling at them, and it goes into some pigs, and then all these pigs jump in the water and drown, which... I'm not quite sure what that means, and I'm not sure what all those pigs were doing around in a Jewish environment in the first place, because theoretically the Jews are not eating them. It's confusing on multiple levels for me, but the point was that might be personification of evil, you know, making it this figure of the devil kind of, I think, ebbed in the period of the Enlightenment and now in our benightenment, which we're kind of in this at this period in, we went from the enlightenment to the benightenment. So how has this ebbed and flowed the view of the existence of evil personified as the Satan, the devil, the Lucifer, the whatever? The devil has had an interesting history, I guess that's one way to put it. As I said before, the devil did not exist for and does not exist for Judaism. For a long time, it was really puzzling what happened there because Jesus was a Jew. And when we read the New Testament, the devil seems to be very real. Satan seems to be very real. And there are demons all over the place. So how do we get from a religion that didn't have a personified devil 
had only an understanding of individuals being capable of functioning as God's adversary, sometimes at God's direction, to the world of the New Testament, which is filled with unseen spirits and demon possessions. And and Jesus himself is challenged by the devil in the desert. How do we get there? Well, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls answered a lot of those questions because the Dead Sea Scrolls are texts that were written during the, the time period that's covered from the end of the last book of the Hebrew Bible before the beginning of the New Testament. So they're, we call them intertestamental literature. And they kind of fill the gap because what we see there is a clear influence from the Babylonian Zoroastrian religion had a very clear concept, a dualistic concept of the universe in which there is a good God and an evil God. And the evil God has reign over this world for a time. And that's deeply influenced the Jewish thinkers of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls period. And apparently Christianity was very much influenced by that. So in the New Testament period, we have very clearly a belief that there are some sorts of unseen demonic figures that have to be confronted. But Jesus confronts these entities or spirits or mindsets or physical beings, however you want to think of it, in a very matter-of-fact way. People are not terrified of them. It's nothing like The Exorcist or any of those modern-day horror movie presentations of demonic possession. Throughout the early church period, there is, in the literature that survives, there is reference to the devil, and theologians talk about who the devil was and how we can deal with the devil, what the devil's purpose was. And then, as you say, as we go along, I mean, for Aquinas, one thing that a lot of people don't realize about Aquinas was he was very, very worried about demons, and he even wrote about the incubus and the succubus and believed in these beings that could possess you and have sex with you in the night. And then we get to Martin Luther, who was all about the devil, uh, and his his prescription, I love his prescription for dealing with the devil. The devil was very real for him. He had personal encounters with the torments of the devil. He attributed his hemorrhoids to the devil, and... Uh, <laughs> And he uh, he was quite the body fellow. If you've never read him, you really should. It's uh, he's a funny guy. He um, prescribed to his students that the best way to deal with the devil was essentially to get drunk and go home and have sex with your wife. <laughs> And then we get to the Enlightenment, as you say, and the devil becomes a superstition, kind of falls off the radar entirely. Nobody's talking about the devil anymore. But then when we come toward the beginning of the 20th century, with the movement to read the Christian scriptures as if they are literal history, then we see a return of the devil. And in some segments of Christianity today, the devil is alive and well, and uh, you better be on the lookout for it. Folks, we are speaking with Charlene Burns, who's author of Christian Understandings of Evil, The Historical Trajectory. In the book, Charlene, you talk about the witches. And I had heard references. I mean, of course, we all know about the Salem witchcraft trials. I had learned that there were witch things going on in the 1600s in England. Pendle Hill, which is a site of George Fox having a revelation, well, you know, 50 years earlier, there were witch trials and people were hanged because they had met with theoretically the devil or something at Pendle Hill. 
this thing about witches consorting with demons, the devil, whatever. In the 1600s, we're talking about, and I thought we were supposed to already be enlightened by that time. Is there a resurgence of belief in the personification of evil as the devil and a resulting putting that on people that happened maybe as kind of a reaction to the Enlightenment? I think that's a valid point. Luther, we think, had a lot to do with the revival of the devil in people's or the survival of the devil, I guess you might say, in people's minds. During Luther's time in the 16th century, a new kind of literature appears on the scene, which I find really interesting. It's called Devil's Books, and in these books there's all sorts of information about the devil and how you can identify people who are in league with the devil. There are catalogs of demons. There are demons for every occasion. <laughs> Anything and everything that is bad in human life is attributed to a demon, and this is in the folk culture. So one of the problems we have of people like me when we write a book like this is trying to deal with the historical trajectory of something. You can't pull the theology out of the context of the times. And so the theology is very often done, it's done by people, I hesitate to say this because it's not so true anymore, but it's done in the ancient world and in the Middle Ages and into the 19th century. It was done by people who lived a fairly privileged life. The intellectuals or the, uh, you know, uh, people like Luther were well supported by the church and then by his followers. And so their lives were not as difficult as the average person's was. And we look at life expectancies. Well, theologians tended to outlive the average life expectancy two times over because they were well cared for. And so what theologians have to say during these time periods doesn't always connect very well with what we see when we look at the folk history of a time. And to say that the devil faded away during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries is really to say that he faded away in the theological reflections of the intellectuals, the privileged class, I guess you might say. The devil stayed alive and even gained a lot of traction during the Middle Ages and the 16th century in the lives of the everyday people. The devil offers an easy explanation for all the suffering of the world. And if you're a peasant in Germany in the 16th century, as opposed to a privileged monk priest who then becomes the leader of a new way of thinking about religion and has the support of the government, which was what Luther's experience was, then your experiences of suffering are very, very different. You know, when your babies die right and left, you know, one in ten infants made it to adulthood. Those kinds of things are your reality, starvation, taxation to the point of absolute poverty, and on and on and on. Then the devil makes for an easy explanation. You know, why is the prince demanding all this of us? Well, he's possessed by the devil. And uh, why is that woman over there so successful at attracting male attention well clearly she's in league with the devil and she's bewitched him in some way in a literal sense so so there is a kind of a disconnect in a lot of ways between the average person's beliefs and living out of their faith and what the theologians wrote and write and we keep dancing back and forth charlene on this question of what is evil, because and throughout the book, there's many theologies that try and deal with the, how you slice and dice this. Suffering happens. 
whether it's Katrina or something, or whether it's the Black Plague. Is the Black Plague caused by evil people? Is evil we've done? Is this payback from God? Or is there some magician or someone in league with Satan who's causing this? So some of those natural things get attributed the quality of evil to. So for instance, you grew up in Georgia, and for quite a while you were both studying and working at Loyola down in New Orleans, and then for some reason you came to the north. You come to Wisconsin and you experience snow and you must have seen it and you said that's evil falling from the sky. Yes, I have been known to use some choice words about <laughs> snow from time to time and the below zero temperatures. <laughs> uh, of course that's tongue in cheek, but <laughs> But yeah, that's an interesting question. When is it appropriate to use the label evil, and when is it just sin or suffering? One way of thinking about it is it, that I find useful is to think in terms of whether we can find meaning that can be associated with the suffering. Does the suffering lead to some good? I think is a very useful tool in thinking about how we parse the question out. Gratuitous suffering is the formal phrase that's used to describe suffering for which we can find no outweighing goods. Many times in life, um, and this is where the conundrum happens a lot of times for ministers and for lay people and for theologians, many times in life what's awful and horrendous suffering right now, when we look back on it, brought some goods in some way. And so is that really the same thing as experiences where it's impossible to identify any kind of outweighing good. So that's the more useful criterion, I think, for me. It does bring problems, though, because then, you know, what about the Holocaust? Well, for me, that's just evil. And yet, you know, and I've had students do this again and again, they really enjoy trying to identify good things that came from World War II. It almost works until you think of the numbers of people who were murdered in the Holocaust. Can we really say that the discoveries that were made about malaria because of the Nazis' torment of people in the prison camps is an outweighing good? Does it really outweigh the suffering of the millions and millions and millions of people during that experience? I would have to say no. And yet you have theologians like Leibniz, the best of all possible worlds, you know, that we're somehow... We're only seeing a small slice of this. So we see millions and millions of people, but you know, from this further out view, there's billions of people to think about. So you're, you're obsessing about 30 million people when we're talking about 30 billion over the course of generations and so on. So I, those arguments can be made. They don't fill my heart with reassurance. And yet I have to admit, and this is a personal perspective, and I, I'd like to get some of your personal perspective on how fulfilling this has been to your heart. One of the things that I've experienced is when my life sucks, when things are really hurting, there's a certain amount of pride that I give up, a certain amount of sense of I'm in control of things. And I think this, the same thing happens with 12-step groups. You know, you have to admit, I'm not in control at all. When I get past that point, there's a certain amount of suffering that I let go of, mm -hmm. that I no longer end up being suffering. So one of my prayers is, God, I think it sucks. I hate it when you do it, but please hammer my heart because at that point when I get broken open, there's a certain amount of 
beauty and embrace of the world that I can do that I cannot do otherwise. That's my experience, and I'm not trying to inflict that upon any person. What's your experience, Charlene? Well, I think, you know, you mentioned Leibniz, and his, this is the best of all possible worlds. He was doing what we call theodicy, which is trying to justify the goodness of God in the face of all the suffering. It's not a denial that suffering is real, that suffering is horrendous. It's an attempt to justify it. So he said this is the best of all possible worlds, meaning this is the best world God could create given what God had to work with. And so it's not quite the joke that uh, Voltaire made of it in his work, Candide, where he lampooned Leibniz. So in a sense, that idea helps me to move in the direction that you're describing. If this is the best of all possible worlds, then that means it kind of sucks, and yeah, that's the way it is. So it's a sort of acceptance of this is what we've got. We have to deal with what we've got. And as you said, in my own personal life, to step back from Leibniz and all those thinkers and just talk personally, in my own personal life, I've had a a similar kind of experience to yours. An awful lot of my suffering occurs when I try to control things. And if I stop, if I step back and I say, okay, I really have no control at all in this situation, what can I do? Then it takes on a different character, whatever it is. It's still suffering in some ways, but it doesn't have the same intensity. It doesn't challenge me in the negative ways that it did before. So I think you're right. In many ways, we create our own suffering through our attempts to control things that simply are not in our control. So just a last comment or two. Again, we've been going through Christian understandings of evil, the historical trajectory. But if you read the book, there is so many facets of how to think about this. that We haven't even scraped the surface. You know, where you put the power, the omniscience, the omnipotence, and what love means and what's natural and what's not. All of those things are looked at, sliced and diced over the millennia by many more powerful minds than mine. There's some really, really top-notch folks there. Some of those writers were looking at major calamities in the world, calamities caused by people sometimes and some apparently beyond the control of people. But, you know, Holocaust, Black death, racism, genocides that have happened, all of those things have happened in the context of evil, as well as Katrina. And so I don't feel at the end of this book that I'm satisfied. I don't feel like even had all of these profound, really insightful thinkers comment, I don't feel that my heart is at ease. But maybe it's not about my heart in any case. That's one of the issues. Where do you sit at this point, and where do you go from here? Because, you know, this isn't the only thing that you've ever written. You've written things like, could digital gaming be good for the soul? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you've written about Carl Jung. You've, you've written on his things. So is this the end of evil for you, or is there some place further that you're going into it, Charlene? When I accepted the invitation to write this book, I thought, okay, this will be really good because it'll sort of give me a quick review of the history of Christian thought on this to prepare me to write my own take on evil. When I got to the end of it, I realized that maybe that's all there is that can be said. Um, I might at some point feel like I have something constructive I can say as a result of all of this. But at the end of the road, 
I came to feel where I am with it now is that it's worthwhile to try to come up with explanations for evil and suffering in the world because it forces us to look at ourselves and to ask the question how much of this was really preventable. In the conclusion of the book, I look at the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina through the lens of all the thinkers that I had read on the way to the end of the book. I found that a very useful exercise because Hurricane Katrina was a natural event for which human beings have no direct responsibility. But when you look at the aftermath of Katrina, human failings were all over that. So the exercise for me is valuable in if we use the concepts in this way, if we look at events like that through the lens of our attempts to explain away evil. Well, we can't explain the natural event itself. And where I am now is we shouldn't even try. That just is the way it is. Maybe Leibniz was right. This is the best possible world that God could give us at this point in time. That raises all sorts of other philosophical and theological questions, but I'm okay with leaving those alone now. And so what's the practical use of all this? Well, the practical use is in asking the questions, why did the levees fail? Where was the government assistance? Why are people still living in trailers in New Orleans? Why is there still suffering reverberating from that natural event 12 years ago? in what's supposed to be the wealthiest country in the world. Why are people suffering from that? All of that is suffering that comes from human failing. That's where I am now. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Charlene, but I think we can both agree, as long as our answer is, well, it's all God's fault. (laughs) (laughs) As long as we don't say that, we're probably going to go in a good direction in thinking about evil. We're all part of the problem, but... We can excuse it or we can confront it. And I appreciate so much, Charlene, that you've attempted to confront it, that you've attempted to deal with the issue up front so that we can go forward to make this a better world. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. And again, we've been speaking with Charlene Burns. I've got a link for her. She is Professor of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Her book, which came out this past year, is Christian Understandings of Evil, the Historical Trajectory. She's got a lot of other writings out there. You'll find a link to that on NordenSpiritRadio.org. I've had production assistance on today's program from Catherine Thomas. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice